Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. We have two guests on with us this morning, uh, Eva Stiedemann and Kevin Ford. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good, 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 good. So this month is the National American Indian Heritage Month, and this is our first show uh, for this month. Um. And Eva, you are an attorney, and Kevin, you are an accountant and financial planner. Uh, Eva, once we start with you, you could tell us how did you get into this? What's your background? Where did you grow up, go to school, all of that? And how did you get into this co-op world? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, So, yes, my background is I, I grew up in a town called Austin, New York. I live in New Mexico now, just to be clear. Um, but I grew up in a town an hour from New York City called Austining, and it actually has a, I'm not Native, just to be clear. Um, I do work with tribal communities and Native communities now. But um, actually, my interest um, in working with Native communities um, actually in part came from my upbringing of growing up in the town um, that was home to Sing Sing Prison. Is, 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 there are some terrible atrocities associated with my town, including Sing Sing Prison, which is named after the Sing Sing um, Native community that was basically decimated due to genocide. Um, and our um, our mascot was called the as a racist mascot um, called the Austin Indians, and that had an effect on me. Um, and I eventually moved out here to New Mexico and realized that there are many thriving Native communities. Um, um, so. Um, that's that's my background, and I also lived in D.C. for some time, and that's where I learned substantially about cooperatives and learned that there are solutions to solving many social problems, going back to old ways, traditional ways of doing things. So what's your education background? Um, I, am a, I, I am a lawyer, so I, I do have um, a JD, and I worked substantially in the field of community development law which is one of the reasons, ways that I learned about cooperatives, housing cooperatives, worker-owned cooperatives. Okay, and you went to the University of the District of Columbia, Clark School Correct. of Law? Correct. Fantastic. I did, I did. and I learned, and I worked substantially with housing cooperatives um, and learned how well they worked to provide um, equitable, affordable housing and give people a voice in their, their housing situation. So about what years years was this that you were in D.C. working in housing? I was there from 2008 to 2018. I was in D.C. I'm working with co-ops for the majority of that that time during law school and then after law school. Well, I'm surprised we didn't meet because I was 
doing property management uh, in D.C. and doing managing a lot of limited equity housing co-ops. And that's where I learned about co-ops that's when I started managing them. I didn't learn about them in school. Did you have classes in at the law school or any other school where you learned about co-ops? Yes, uh, the, through the Community Development Law Clinic at UDC. There was a heavy focus on housing co-ops with um, Kemet Malakana, Professor Kemet Malakana, and uh, Louise Howells. So we learned about the power of housing cooperatives, worker-owned cooperatives, food cooperatives. I was part of a small food cooperative there in D.C. So what was the name of that co-op? Uh, I think it was called Garden City. It was in Mount Pleasant. It okay. was very small. Yeah, there's we volunteered to basically, um, we had very affordable food, healthy food through the co-op. Well, I knew Louise Howe. Uh, she was quite, quite helpful to the housing co-ops, the board members in particular, and if there were issues, but mainly uh, also in training. So, yeah, that that was great. So, Kevin, let's turn to you. What's your background, and how did you get into co-op? Well, my background uh, started, my professional background started in the military. I enlisted active duty Air Force, uh, came out of high school and was looking for a college education and grew up in a family that uh, that wasn't going to be financially feasible, and uh, Uncle Sam offered an opportunity to get schooling paid for. Uh, so I pursued my 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 interest, my area of interest, which was accounting, uh, both active duty and as well as while I was going to school. And um, shortly after leaving active duty, um, went to work as a civilian out at Patrick Air Force Base, managing some of the long range contracts for uh, NASA and uh, some of the activities out there, um, and got to see a really interesting side of government accounting. But I wanted to expand my professional background um, into private understanding the private sector a little bit better and had an opportunity to join a uh, IPO team for a natural grocery retailer that was currently in their IPO process. Kevin, what's IPO? Oh, uh, IPO is a initial public offering. Uh, that's what the initial stage is when a company decides they want to go public or become publicly traded on Wall Street uh, or on one of the exchanges. Uh, they'll go through the initial public offering process. Initial public offering. And uh, where did you grow up? What state, what city? Da, da, da. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona. Graduated from Mesa High in 98. Mesa, Arizona. So are you native? I am native. I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation out of Oklahoma. Okay. All right. So now you are working for this national food chain and you're doing an IPO. Take it yeah. from there. Part of my responsibilities was to work with um, uh, primarily with the CEO and, and providing all of the data and analytics that he required uh, moving through this process. But I was also uh, heavily active at store level, working with store level staff. And a lot of a lot of questions came around, you know, would the would the organization change shape? This, the organization had grown to 280 stores and a lot of the, the store managers and the staff had been with the company since its inception um, and were very vested in it. And so there was a lot of concern that the IPO would change that and uh, that they would essentially become a number and no longer really a part of an integral part of the family. Um, and my part of my responsibilities was to assure them that that wasn't happened to help explain the benefits package uh, that would be part of their compensation package post IPO. And in the end, what I found was that a lot of the promises that were made to people and a lot of the promises that I was making ended up not being fulfilled. Um, and that didn't sit well with me. 
And so that began my search of looking for a better way for conducting business. Okay, and where did you land? Well, ironically, I landed in New Zealand. Um, there was a couple of businesses oh, in New Zealand <laughs> um, that were in trouble. From, um, from, Mesa, from Mesa, Arizona, you ended up in New Zealand. Okay. I ended up in New Zealand, on the north island of New Zealand, near Wyota. There was a couple of businesses there that were in trouble, and through some other interests that my family and I hold in, in regenerative agriculture, we made contact, and they had asked if I would use some of my business background to come over and help them sort through uh, some of the challenges that they were facing. And so when we landed, I was introduced to the concept of cooperation. Um, it's very big in the South Pacific. Um, in fact, that's where the majority of RBI does its business. Um, we've got several projects, working projects over in that area. And that's what began my exploration of cooperatives. And we uh, successfully converted both the businesses in New Zealand to cooperative models. And that has been my sole focus since and what is RBI? RBI stands for Regenerative Business Institute. Uh, we're structured as an institute um, just because I feel like we, uh, we as a society have a lot to learn about forming uh, regenerative economies that are considerate of the planet's natural resources, uh, considerate of human resources or human beings, and taking care of our needs. So regenerative, what do you mean by that word as it relates to business? As it relates to business, it means uh, that we move beyond the extrapolative uh, business models um, that seek to maximize profit at all expense. Um, and we look at, from my perspective, more of the art of business um, and what the art of business, as I've come up to learn throughout my MBA program and my professional studies postgraduate school, is, you know, we, we create these entities to meet our needs and wants. And in our current uh, economies, that's primarily profit-driven and gives very little consideration to the other aspects that I feel are important to life, such as, you know, culture, art, taking care of one another, uh, and taking care of this beautiful planet we've been given. Okay, so I have an MBA also. We have that in common. And I learned that decisions were made on the best return on investment. What's the ROI? What gives you the best Correct. return on investment? And that's to the stockholder. So that's all profit-driven. And too often it's short-term focus. And I heard nothing about what is best for the employee, what's best for the customer, what's best for the planet that you just talked about. And so I have it that our normal businesses are concerned about profit, profit, and profit, three Ps. Where co-ops are concerned about three Ps also, but it's people first, planet second, profit third. Have to have profit in order to stay around and, and grow, but it's not the main focus. So, yeah, I got that, too. Okay, so you both got into business in different, I mean, into co-op in different kinds of ways. Eva learned about it in school at the Clark uh, Law School at their center, and you got it when you went to the South Pacific. I think you didn't, did you have any classes, Kevin, in co-ops in your formal education? All of my formal education was focused on the conventional business model. So, no, I did not, I did not receive my cooperative education from uh, conventional education. So that's the capitalistic model. So that's both of us. What I want to talk about is in your Regenerative Business Institute and Eva as an associate at Chestnut Law Office, what kind of projects do you all work on? Just 
real quickly before we take break, just give me some examples of cooperative projects you work on. Uh, I can start. Go ahead. So I've worked with several cooperatives in Native communities, including um, Artist Cooperative and the Zuni Pueblo, um, which is a Native tribe and also a home health aid cooperative um, of immigrants, as well as several agricultural cooperatives. And Kevin? So the uh, the cooperatives in New Zealand, one is a heritage seed company, uh, currently responsible for maintaining over 863 varieties of heritage seed to the region. Uh, the other is a soil amendment company. I, I hesitate to use the term fertilizer, but they are a soil amendment company. Uh, we've also got two projects in Fiji. One is a uh, housing uh, construction company, and the other is a agriculture. And even I are currently working on a um, cooperative on Navajo Nation together. We'll be right back, everybody. I want to know more about these projects, particularly the one on Navajo Nation. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. This is WOL News Talk 1450 AM and 95.9 FM 95.9. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oates, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We are celebrating the National American Indian Heritage Month, and we have Eva Seedeman and Kevin Fort on with us today. They're both in New Mexico. So before we took the break, I asked the question of what projects had you worked on? And I want to go back to that and, and delve more into the projects, the cooperative projects in particular. I see you're all over the world, Kevin, with, with your company, at least in the South Pacific. So Eva, won't we start with the arts uh, cooperative and what work, work you did? I did have... Candace Kwam on the show once from the Zuni Pueblo. She's been, no, she's been on twice. But tell me the work that you did to help that project to come alive. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I was really interested in cooperatives when I came here. And um, I ended up being one of the first employees at an organization called the Cooperative Catalyst of New Mexico. And one of the first funding sources was through a USDA called Socially Disadvantaged Group, Groups Grant. Um, so this was before I was actually, I wasn't really practicing law, but I was still using my law degree um, in cooperative development experience. So um, we connected with the um, with the Zuni community, various uh, various community organizations and the community college there in Zuni. And basically, there is a group of uh, Zuni Pueblo artists who were ready to develop a cooperative. It was almost natural. It was just the natural business form that they were interested in, Um, again, because they have practiced cooperation in their communities for time immemorial and, you know, a more for-profit oriented model, you know, just would, I think, was not desired by them. So uh, we, we, you know, we worked with them to help form a legal business entity, a cooperative association. Um, They don't have a cooperative statute, like a cooperative law in their particular Pueblo tribe. Um, So we did have to form with the state of New Mexico. However, we, you know, we informed them that they're, they, you know, they operate as a sovereign nation and on sovereign land. So 
even though they formed in New Mexico, we, you know, help to explain that they can, they still operate in the way that they want to. They don't have to follow most state law. Um, and we also helped, I helped to develop, um, you know, policies and procedures and um, helps with fundraising and various aspects, more, uh, more facilitation around um, guiding the community around what they wanted and then kind of putting a lot of that into like a, a, a formal structure and documents and procedures and things. Um, and then they launched and it's, you know, it's been a successful artist, uh, Zuni artist owned business, the only Zuni artist owned business in Zuni Pueblo for uh, almost five, four years now. Um, and they, they operate a gallery. And so that was, that was, that was definitely a successful project. I was, I was glad to be working there. Well, I'm glad you worked with them too, Eva, because I did visit their uh, Zuni the town and I uh, visited their their uh, art studio, I guess, two, three years ago. And I bought all of my Christmas gifts uh, from them. And I, the, only, the, the artwork was superb in terms of necklaces and uh, rings. The jewelry is just phenomenal. And then they had uh, paintings, which I really love the colors. Uh, the colors that natives use and African tribes use are very, very similar, very bright, very brilliant colors. Uh, so I'm glad you worked on it. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, there, and so did the folks that received the gifts. Oh, let's move it to home health care. Home health care. So the home health care co-op, that is also an exciting one that just launched. It's called the Albuquerque Assisted Care and Comunidad. Um, and the last part is in Spanish because uh, all the members are immigrant women, um, mostly Latina and Spanish speaking. Um, and they have been working on this call for about for also about a few years. Um, they all work as home health aides, you know, home care workers basically, but wanted to form a business together so that they don't all have to, you know, individually try to be entrepreneurs and find their own work makes the most sense also um, due to immigration issues to form a business as a cooperative. And so it's, it's exciting because, um, you know, we, I helped to form a particular business that works for um, them as immigrants. Um, I, so I provided again, legal advice, um, advice on developing their policy structures, um, employment advice, things like that. And now they, they have their website and their marketing and they're looking for work. Oh, okay. So they're really new. Uh, they are. Did you work at all? Did you work with CDF at all, the Corporate Development Foundation, for this um, It was actually more in partnership with a local organization called Encuentro. Um, the local organization that serves. They may have worked a little bit with CDF. Um, I was just mostly on the legal side for that. Uh, but this organization called Encuentro really helped to develop, uh, to facilitate the development there, partly because they have a training program um, for home health aides. And so they had a community there of people that, you know, had done the, prop- the training and were looking to form businesses or looking for work. But we, I think maybe we worked, they worked a bit in conjunction with CDF. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. because they have uh, a home health care uh, cooperative initiative and they have an annual meeting with a lot of training. I think it's a week long. They also have some funding. So I, if you haven't, then that may be a good place to look for support 
TrueCDF, cdf.coop is where you could go to get some support and some help about that. All right, let's let's move over. I wanted to go to Kevin with some of your agriculture co-ops in the Navajo Nation. Certainly. So um, that's that organization is forming as Bikwa Agriculture Cooperative. It's up in the District 3 area of the Western Agency of Navajo Nation and um, is going to encompass a little over 700 acres of agriculture land. The primary purpose of um, forming the structure as a cooperative is to protect that land uh, as agriculture production land. Um, it's also focused on preserving water. Um, water is obviously a precious resource up in that region. And um, so water and food production and making sure that the land is preserved uh, specifically for those purposes and doesn't have other development um, priorities trying to take over that. And so do you have any competition for that land? Uh, there, there is some. Um, there's a, been a few proposals. Um, I think one proposal was a solar farm. Um, but there are, have been a few proposals on other uses for that land. Uh, so it's been very important to the members of that community to make sure that that land remains available for their food sovereignty and uh, preservation of their culture. Okay, 700 acres is a fair size lot. <laughs> okay. What I'm interested in is native laws versus state laws versus federal laws in getting something like this in the, in terms of the land. I don't know if it should be you, Kevin, talking about this or Eva, but what kind of laws come into play to get this land to where it can be set aside for agriculture for the Navajo Nation? I can start if you want to build um, add anything, Kevin. Just I think I think for out listeners, I think many listeners might not understand tribal sovereignty, meaning <clears throat> this is a um, sovereign nation uh, that is independent and distinct from any state. Though it unfortunately under the entire body of it's called federal Indian law, basically it's an area in which U.S. unfortunately. The U.S. government does control, um, have a, a, a significant amount of control over Native nations um, due to colonization. So there's a significant amount of federal control by the federal government, similar to the District of Columbia. However, because tribes are considered domestic dependent nations, so they're not as completely as, as sovereign as they should be and want to be. So due to that that um, relationship with the federal government, the land is held in trust, called held in trust. So it's basically the U.S. government is essentially responsible for that land and in some ways has, con- has a significant amount of control over it due to the erosion of, of true that tribal sovereignty and self-determination. So there's a lot of federal, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, is there are significant numbers of regulations and control by the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, with respect to that land, with land use planning. So that's just a bit of background. State law okay. generally does not apply, well, we have, but when, and sometimes does. <laughs> Eva, we have to go to our next break. So I want to come back and talk a little bit about the laws and continue with what's the what what works in the laws for tribal and for federal law and what doesn't. But I'm I'm more interested in the Pueblos 
the traditions of Native compared to cooperative values and principles. I want to talk about that after the, the next break. And we've got to get to you, Kevin, to talk about the accounting needs of, of these co-ops. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Let's continue the conversation about Native laws and comparing to federal laws. Eva, did you find anything in the laws, particularly federal laws, that would stop you from creating co-ops on Native tribal lands, Native communities? No, there's nothing that uh, that really technically stops you from forming cooperatives. In fact, in the Navajo Nation, they have their own they have their own set of laws, um, very very large complex set of laws, and they have their own cooperative law. So actually, um, you know, it's specifically focused on agricultural cooperatives, and so actually, it's a, it can be a great place to form a cooperative. I think the challenge comes with uh, issues related to the the federal government, federal regulations, and complexities between federal regulations, tribal regulations, and state, the state's ability to also tax. Tax is a big issue with these various entities trying to impose taxes, um, (laughs) which can create um, complexity and um, a lot of unknowns that may discourage it may discourage investment. Um, we hope not. But the other issue is um, traditional financing is not available because the land cannot be used as collateral because it's been held in trust by the federal government. So it does, there's nothing that prevents cooperatives to be formed, but some of the ways in which especially businesses are financed or um, ways in which cooperatives often do not have to comply with many regulations are not the case um, maybe in tribal communities because there are, there are many legal complexities and many barriers to finance. Wow. Okay. There seems to be enough barriers in trying to get the Wall Street types to, to finance co-ops or even SBA. We just got them to finance co-ops about two years ago. Maybe it was approved five years ago, but I think the first one, which is a food co-op in Virginia, yeah, that getting the financing is always difficult and having land and trust held by the federal government means you can't borrow. You can't put that up as collateral. I got it. Back to you, Kevin, when you were talking about um, the ag co-op, B-I-K-O-O-H, ag cooperative, 700 acres of Navajo Nation, you'd also said something about having a food co-op. What, what is that about? Certainly. So, yeah, the ultimate goal is to um, expand the operations of this cooperative uh, into a grocery co-op. They would like to have a community kitchen uh, attached to the grocery retail store itself. Um, The idea is, you know, providing opportunities for um, each of the the producing members to have a space where they can come in and and value add, um, process whatever products they're producing on their own sites. to either offer for sale or retail within the co-op itself or 
hopefully expanding and looking at targeting other grocery retailers throughout. So looking at the economic opportunities that could be available through this type of an initiative as well. I think one of the biggest focuses with the community kitchen is the cultural aspect of teaching the younger generations some of the old food preservation and food preparation techniques and uh, including much of what is used for ceremonial um, and prayer practices. And that, that community kitchen is really vital in providing that space to do that. Can I come and be the taster to check it out on the food? <laughs> you know, I can tell you, I've spent some time out there. And one of the first things I learned that I was really surprised is that mesquite ash can be used as a one-for-one replacement for baking soda. Um, so much of the traditional pond or bread um, is is made using mesquite ash rather than chemical baking soda. And it is wonderful, I tell you. So yeah, absolutely, please come out and we'd love to share a meal with you. Now, what is mesquite ash? When you say ash, I'm thinking about ashes from a fire. But And that is very much what it is. Mesquite is the wood. Mesquite it's is the wood. wood. It's very prevalent throughout that region. Wow. I would like, um, I used to bake, so that would be quite interesting. Okay. Have you heard of Up and Coming a Conference? Up and Coming is a conference, I think it was just last month. It could have been two months ago, September or October where they had, in this particular year, 266 participants of people starting food co-ops throughout the U.S. And you you have different people there, like National Co-op Bank was there, the different um, share capital in terms of money for co-ops. And I got a chance to interview the people that started the Detroit People's Food Co-op. And it is a, it took 13 years to get it started. They raised $20 million and it has a community kitchen and a lot of other things. So people in there share with each other about what the experiences are, which is what happens in co-ops in the fifth principle of, of uh, education, knowledge, and information is sharing information to help make sure that everybody has a really good chance of being successful. So you may want to check out this up and coming. You could just Google up and coming and it comes up. Um, it's phenomenal. I've, I've been a couple of years, a lot of, lot of training, a lot of information goes on. So Kevin, now I want to talk to you about finance and just financial education training. Do you all do that? And if so, how do you do it? And if not, who does the financial training for co-op members? Yeah, so um, we've, we've learned throughout the last decade that financial education, um, not only for the board of directors, but for the leadership of the cooperative. And I've learned that the membership um, is critically important to have a very strong foundation in, in at least basic financial accounting, um, learning how to read financial statements, learning how the equity works within the organization. And I know these can be big, scary terms. Um, but our goal and our effort is really targeting um, to alleviate some of those concerns or some of that anxiety that comes up when these big financial terms come up. And the reason for that is, um, you know, cooperatives exist under a, a founding promise of developing short-term and long-term wealth creation for their membership. And, you know, earlier in the program, you mentioned that profit is not the primary motive of a co-op, and that's, that is a critically important aspect. But given our economic structures that we operate in, uh, whether you're cooperative or otherwise, that profit has to be there in order to sustain the organization. 
And given that cooperatives differ from their conventional counterparts and that they, uh, they exist to serve their members, their members are intended to hold their boards accountable for the operating and financial results of the organization. And then the board is intended to obviously give those directives from the voting membership to the leadership to make sure that those operational and financial strategies are executed. And so our goal is to use this financial education to to kind of complete that cycle of providing that education and teaching members how to hold their boards and their their leadership accountable. Uh, We've done that kind of uh, through uh, seminars and PowerPoint presentations, Zoom presentations in the past. We're currently developing an online uh, educational platform through a, a learning management system or an LMS um, that's going to be offered through a couple of different cooperative education providers and nonprofit organizations uh, to help make that education more accessible. Okay. When I told you guys I used to do property management in the district, uh, limited equity housing co-ops, what I fell in love with immediately was this mostly senior black women making extremely good business decisions without an MBA or at best perhaps a high school education. And they held each other accountable. They held me accountable, the lawyers accountable, the financial people, each other. That was a part of the culture which they had learned through Eva, the the um, the communities, the center at, at um, University of, of District of Columbia and housing counseling services. Those were the two main organizations that did the training here. I found out the training wasn't good enough because it may be three months or six months at the beginning, but it had to be ongoing. And too often it wasn't ongoing and people, you know, board members change and so forth. But I also like all members to get training to know that financial statement. Totally agree with you. I was absolutely um, inspired by the the mostly black women, Latina women who I worked with who were running, you know, multi million dollar housing organizations. <laughs> yeah, it's multi million dollar business. Could be a two hundred thousand dollar business if it's four units or six units, or it could be two million dollar business of income from the rent. And they have to make all of these decisions and to watch these watch these mostly ladies, sometimes men, make these decisions was just phenomenal. I was just, I I floored. It was fascinating. That's what got me involved in in co-ops is is that, that people had control, people had voice, people had self-worth, and they created social and financial wealth. Okay, so we all love co-ops. Tell me, uh, Kevin, in your, you did the IPO in traditional capitalistic business that turned you off because they made promises that they didn't keep. What about co-ops do you like most as you work with co-ops throughout the world? Well, when I look at, um, I'm, I'm kind of nerdy in that I really love to study history. Um, and particularly, I like to study pre-colonial history with indigenous communities. And that's globally. I like to understand the trends. I like to understand. I try to put myself in the position of, say, my tribal elders at the time when they were in Mississippi and their treaty was put in front of their face. And they're having to make decisions about whether they're going to stay or whether they're going to be one of the first tribes on the Trail of Tears, you know, and what their ramifications or the implications could be for refusing to 
to abide by the terms of the treaty that was presented to them. You know, I look, I, I try to put myself from a historical perspective in those positions and, and having the privilege of working with um, both Ni Vanuatu from the island of Vanuatu in, in the South Pacific to Fijians, to the Maoris in New Zealand, indigenous communities all over the world share some very similar experiences. Um, and this isn't meant to diminish anyone's experience, but I think there's some similarities when we look at the way colonialism impacted the cultures and the life, the livelihoods of um, indigenous people over the planet. Cooperative principles, they align with the way of life that those indigenous communities were already living without formal and legal business structures to govern them. They inherently knew how to take care of one another. They inherently knew that in order for the senior um, generations to be taken care of, um, that we needed to assimilate their expertise and their experience and their guidance um, and we needed to prepare the younger generations to fill roles and to hold each other in the community accountable for making sure that the needs of everyone was met. One of, one of the traits of capitalism is to drive this individualistic uh, identity or this individualistic culture uh, that we're so familiar with, unfortunately. And, you know, the principles of democracy, one, it requires us all to not only exercise our voice and have a responsible use of that voice, but to understand how the use of that voice in, uh, in, impacts others within our community. And so cooperatives, I think, are just a, they're kind of a, a petri dish, if you will, of uh, I think how we can kind of go back to um, some of those traditional ways that our, our ancestors inherently knew were uh, I think far more conducive to a holistic and, and a happy and sustaining lifestyle. I love it. We're going to come back and talk more about that after this break. Of conducive lifestyle, supporting each other. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. News Talk 1450 WOLAN, where information is power. Welcome back. Uh, this is Barnard Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we are celebrating National American Indian Heritage Month with Eva Silverman and Kevin Fort. Guys, we've been on the air now 10 years. Uh, October made our 10th year anniversary, and NCB, National Cooperative Bank, has been our supporter, financial supporter, all of these 10 years, and they've just been a great, great partner. Their mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So if you have not used NCB, Kevin or Eva, you might want to check them out either for, for any of these businesses, particularly home health care, the ag business, they're into all of those different kinds of business. And they really look for innovative ways. And even when you were talking about you can't use the land because it's held in trust by the federal government, so you cannot put it up as collateral. I mean, worker co-ops, uh, individuals can't sign for it or often will not sign. And so for worker co-ops, you have to look for different kinds of ways to get collateral or to get the loans. So. Uh, you might want to check out NCB. 
Have either one of you worked with them in the past? I have. They're a wonderful organization. Yeah, I've worked with them through housing co-ops, and they're great. Those co-op-specific banks like NCB are just incredibly invaluable. (laughs) Yeah, they were created by by Congress in the mid-'80s just for this purpose, and they do a wonderful job. Kevin, I could listen to you all day talking about going back and looking at history and how indigenous people throughout the world uh, lived before colonial times using, they weren't called cooperative values and principles, but that's what it really, in fact, what they were, that everybody knows what they have to do to support the whole community, whether that's supporting seniors or supporting children or supporting those people that have to do most of the work that the adults within that working age. I mean, everybody needs support. And how does, how do you get that in a community? And that's what happens in co-ops. And I found it in, in the housing co-op here in the district um, that, well, it was not, I did manage some in Maryland and Virginia that was the same thing. I would hear people say things like, I know who's been bringing those stolen cars on, on the lot. And then they would work with the government, the police or whomever they had to work with. And so crime was lower on these co-op, in these co-op communities and in surrounding communities. But it was because people worked together. And so I, I could talk to you all day or listen to you all day. Um, Eva, have you picked up any of this? You're not native but you're working in native lands. Have you picked up any of this, the comparison between the native cultures of the past and this, the co-op models, the values and principles of cooperation? Well, um, actually with the, we also represent in my office, um, Pueblo tribal governments and, and organizations. And Pueblos are, are very different from the Navajo Nation in that they're small communities, about 5,000 or less usually. And so, you know, well, regardless, they, you know, they are continuing to practice their sort of cooperative and mutualistic traditions, as in, I'm sure communities in Navajo Nation also are, but um, the way that Pueblos have been able to be preserved, um, they have stayed on their land, they have not been removed from their land, so they have been on their land since time immemorial, and they, you know, share in agricultural traditions, um, sharing water, sharing um, the responsibilities associated with um, yeah, tending the crops and cultivating crops, sharing food um, in terms of there are many cultural ceremonies in which, um, you know, there's a lot of sharing of food and sharing of responsibilities surrounding the cultural ceremonies. So I don't, I the way I see it, um, though I'm only a lawyer, I do see their their ceremonies and feasts. Uh, they are practicing these cooperation and mutualistic traditions today. So I just have you know learned learned from them and really admire the way they they cooperate. As a non-native person, do they allow you to come to the ceremonies? Yes, I, yeah, I go to feast days. And some other ceremonies, they're very welcoming of um, some some ceremonies are just for their communities and others, they welcome the public. And you, you can go and eat and they feed you and watch, watch their dances. Okay. I want to come out and play. All right. 
Kevin, let's let's talk. Do you see any additional co-ops being developed now that you can work on? Yeah, the, my my inbox seems to fill up every week with new projects. I think right now that one of the biggest projects that RBI is engaged in, aside from this this cooperative project on Navajo Nation, um, is going to be. Um, we're currently working to set ourselves as an intermediary to be able to operate as a regulation crowdfunding uh, platform specifically for the cooperative industry. Um, using the legislation passed by the JOBS Act, um, there's certain ways that we uh, have worked with the, the legal community to ensure that we can legally operate and raise capital for the cooperative community. And so that's one of our biggest initiatives, trying to close that gap uh, for cooperatives to gain access to capital. But you know, there's there's no shortage of, of um, people. I'm inspired every day. Every time that I get frustrated or feel like um, I think that sense of loss of hope, you know, there's there's usually someone who picks up the phone or sends an email um, and it reignites that fire with me that says, you know what, it's, we're not done fighting this battle. It's We've got to keep moving on and keep fighting. Um, and that's uh, I'm really grateful that every day that I get to experience that. So I've had Christina Jennings on at Shared Capital. And they've been looking at ways of raising funding. And so you may want to just collaborate with her, too, about what you're doing. And they've raised funding to develop co-ops throughout the U.S. So that that may be a good uh, partner. What about you, Eva? Anything that you're working on? Well, I do want to, I think you had mentioned thinking about um, future initiatives and I um, I think there's a, a lot of interest in home care. I know that Bidji Bobby Gay from Cooperative Catalyst is, is really interested in um, expanding home care cooperatives, as we discussed, um, in tribal communities. You know, there's really a need to care for, el- for our elders, um, especially with the silver tsunami, as they say. And so I think there's, there's really um, potentially a lot of movement in that area. Um, whether they be worker-owned or another kind of um, home care, home health aid cooperative at large scale. Um, and then the other type is um, solar and renewable energy cooperatives. There's also a very big initiative um, in the Navajo Nation, an existing solar company that would like to convert to a cooperative because it it's, you know, just makes more sense culturally. So those are a couple of initiatives I've heard about um, and I've, I've somewhat been, I haven't been super active, but I've, I've been um, somewhat um, active in. So on that solar one, would that be a worker co-op where the employees own it, or would that be a consumer co-op where the people that receive the power from the solar would own it? What, what, do you have a sense of that yet? I think that they were interested in a consumer cooperative, um, potentially a multi-stakeholder I think potentially maybe some stake with workers, but primarily focused on the consumers, so those who are um, using using the the energy, and maybe not just maybe expanding beyond solar. I'm not. They might have other renewable energy sources they're looking into, but um, that's certainly of interest. Okay. So, what would you like to leave people with? Kevin, make it 30 to 45 seconds. What what message would you like to leave people with? I think what I would like to say is get creative. What, uh, what aspects of the household or the business budget can you look at, um, whether it's the utility lines, the, the clothing lines, the whatever, whatever those different line items are on those different budgets, and get creative. What, 
what cooperative opportunities exist within those areas and reach out to the the abundance of resources that are out there working within cooperative development because it, it really is important and vital to this uh, to stabilize our economy and kind of reduce our dependence on uh, federal interaction in those economic structures. It, it's a way of sovereignty and uh, solidarity for us. Fantastic. Eva, what message would you like to leave people with? So the message I would like to leave is I do think large scale institutions such as governmental um, institutions, impact investors, et cetera, really need to invest substantially in cooperatives to bring bring them to scale. Um, I don't think they happen on their own. Um, We do still live in capitalism, so they still need to um, work within the system. And so they need substantial capital and support to really thrive and to build a a true cooperative economy. Fantastic. Lucas? Look at your budget and see what line items are there, and you can figure out a co-op that you can help to create and to get the government to produce more money and figure out how to work with Wall Street for money. Still need that capitalistic money. Everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power.